You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Well, Psalm 131 is a brief psalm, yet a powerful psalm. In fact, many people have pointed out that although it's very brief, it takes a lifetime to learn the truth that is found inside of this psalm. In verse 2, our singer is going to talk about a calmed and quieted soul, which to me stands out in a culture that is frenzied, harried, and stressed as a beautiful pursuit and desire to have a calmed and a quieted soul, a soul that is satiated and at rest. And here in this psalm, we are going to see that this calm and quiet soul is possible for the disciple, for the pilgrim. And it comes by humbly embracing only what God has for you, then growing in contentment and encouraging others to do likewise. The song begins with a bit of self-confession in the positive, actually, and not in the negative. It's a statement of growth rather than a statement about past or previous sinfulness. The singer says, O Lord, verse 1, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So the singer begins this song by trumpeting, so to speak, his own accomplishment here, which he considers as special, that his heart is not lifted up, that his eyes are not raised too high, and that he's not occupying himself with things too great and too marvelous for himself. Now, one of the first questions that we might have about the song is the nature of the song. In other words, it might strike us in our Christian mind frame or mindset as odd to consider a singer of a song like this in the Bible praising an accomplishment of his. We might wonder if this is pharisaical boasting. You know, like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 in Jesus' story who, as it says in Luke 18 verse 11, stood by himself and prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus, as he unfolded that story, basically held out that character, that pharisaical boasting, as the evil character. And so the question that we might have here is, does this claim of humility and lowness actually cancel out the claim? And I think there's a few answers to that question. First of all, this song in its prescript says that it's a song of David, and it it might have been necessary in David's life at some point through this song or through this confession to defend himself from a false accusation. Someone may have been saying of him that his eyes were lifted too high, that his heart 
was lifted up and that he did occupy himself with things that were too great and too marvelous for himself. Secondly, it might have also been necessary for David in teaching a lesson or giving instruction to talk about what was going on inside of his heart during a specific season. And for the readers and the hearers and the worshipers to be able to say how beautiful that as he passed through these various seasons of life, what was going on internally was not a prideful, self-glorying attitude, but a humility within. And additionally, I think that the statement that's made is the kind of statement that no Pharisee would be able to make, for they did not even value humility in the first place. No, I think this is similar to when Moses wrote in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. He did so under divine inspiration, the breath of the Holy Spirit moving him along as he wrote the book of Numbers. And by him writing that he was meek does not cancel out the fact that he was meek, but the Holy Spirit wanted to give it to us for our instruction. So that might help us with the nature of the song. But the first verse is not a perspective that someone hears every day. You know, someone's saying, I'm not going to raise my eyes too high. I'm not going to occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Now, the truth is, is that all human beings in every nation and in every culture experience similar temptations. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you are not a unique individual in the sense that no one else has experienced the temptations that you are experiencing. But even though that is true, it seems also true that various cultures experience wide-sweeping, specialized temptations in their own unique setting, which can cause special problems. In our Western civilization, the United States especially, it seems that we have inherited this particular temptation, the temptation toward ungodly ambition. It feels like the right attitude in our society and culture is one where we would say that there is nothing that we cannot do, that there is nothing that we cannot know, that there is nothing that we cannot be experts in. And that seems to be a predominant perspective, uh, an attitude of ambition in this culture of ours. Now, you would think that with the advent of the internet and the introduction of an overloaded information age, you would think that humility might have come in. Because with every gigabyte that is uploaded, with all of the information that is out there, the gap between all that there is to know and what we actually know personally is only growing larger and larger every single day. 
And so you'd think that by perusing the internet for a moment, reading a little bit online for a moment, one might cultivate humility in their heart because of the overwhelming nature of all that there is to know. The world is not as simple, so to speak, as we might have previously perceived it to be. And so the problems are complex. The the issues are complex. But the very thing that should have brought humility or could have brought humility is actually often the thing that fosters a feeling of our all-knowingness. That with all of that information, we know all. And so we are tempted to tell our doctors and our professors and our pastors and our teachers and our politicians what they ought to be and what they ought to think and do. On the other hand, the disciple is one who humbles out and takes a lower view of himself. Here we have this disciple saying, there is such a thing as something that's too high for me or too great for me or too marvelous for me. It's interesting how in private we can so often have such a high view of our own opinions. We act like a five-star general on one hand in that we know exactly what the military of our nation should do. We act like a licensed and skilled master family therapist in that we know exactly what every member of our family should be and should do. We act like we are a skilled and savvy and experienced head of state and that we know how we should interact with the nations around us. We act like articulate philosophers or master theologians or brilliant scholars. And we act like all of these things at times all blended into one. But there are problems and issues on earth that it would be good for the disciple to say, I don't know what to do about that problem. It appears to be an issue. It appears to be a problem, but I am out of my depth. I don't know what to say. I am in the position or the seat of a learner. I am not going to set my mind on things that are too high and too great for me. It says in Romans 12, verse 16, that we're to live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So the disciple confesses that there are things that are too high, too great, and too marvelous for him or her. Some of the categories to consider this in would be categories like gifts and abilities. It's been said that many in wishing to be great, have failed to even be good. There's this desire to be used by God, but only if I get to be the person with the five talents, not two or one. And so we have to come to a place of just lowering the self and saying, you know, the truth is I am limited. There's only so much that I can know. There's only so much that I can do. I need to stay in the lane that God has designed for me. So gifts and abilities. Also, as I mentioned earlier, there's the category of problems in world and culture. 
sometimes the problem that you think that you're solving as you chat about it with your friends or rattle it around in your own brain is actually not a problem in the mind of God. He might be sovereignly using the problem that you've identified to bring his ultimate goal and desire of the consummation of all things into reality. Additionally, there are also relational complexities, I think, that fit into this category where you have individuals with various backgrounds and experiences that we don't know about. And we might so easily say they should do this or they should do that. And instead of realizing, look, I I don't know their construct. I don't know their story. I don't know all that they've been facing. And of course, when we come to the Bible, we understand that there are theological quandaries as well. It says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And let us not fall into the trap or into the sin of thinking that we need to be able to explain everything, even coming to conclusions that the Bible does not come to. No, we have to be content with ourselves to be okay with the lane that God has given to us. It says in James 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the Old Testament, there was a king named Uzziah, who by all accounts in scripture was a great king. However, there came a time in his life where he wanted to be more than a king. He wanted to actually operate like one of the priests in Israel. And so it says in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, that when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And as you patch together all of the scriptures about Uzziah and that incident, it's clear that God struck him with leprosy in that moment because he had resisted the lane that God had for him. He was discontent with it. He had grown prideful in his heart and thought, look, I've done a good job in being king. I can handle this, and I can also handle being priest, rather than realizing that that had not been ordained by God in heaven. He had thought himself as the king because he was good or great or special, rather than by the grace or the mercy of God. Now, before I move off of this point into verse 2, and I realize I'm going slowly through the psalm, but after all, it's only a three-verse psalm. But before I move off of this first concept, that the disciple confesses that there are things too high and too great and too marvelous for them, I think it is important to try to delineate between ambition and aspiration. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, said that aspiration is an impatience with mediocrity and a dissatisfaction with all things created until we are at home with the creator, the hopeful striving for the best God has for us. Ambition is that gone crazy. So what I wanted to make sure to say is that Psalm 131 verse 1 is not excusing or giving an opportunity to avoid the challenges of life. It's one thing 
to have the sinful desire like the citizens in Babel to build their own kingdom, their own wonderful thing without God. It's another thing to have an extreme desire, an aspiration for personal sanctification. It's one thing to stuff your barns filled with stuff beyond reasonable need of any human being. And it's another thing entirely to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is ambition and there is aspiration. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13 to 18, spoke of each individual's area of influence. Some belittle themselves so extremely that they are unusable by God, and others exalt themselves and become also unusable by the Lord. In fact, I think if we think about this, a verse I quoted previously might help with this idea. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but it goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, there are secrets, but there are revealed things that God has committed into our hands. We're not to approach the Bible and simply say, well, it's, I don't understand this passage at first glance, rather easily, must just be a secret that I will never know. No, we're to say, God has given it. He's given me a mind and a heart and thought to where I can move through this scripture and try to wrestle with it and grow to understand what this passage is communicating to man. So there is a balance here. The disciple, though, has aspired to his or her lane and is trying to reject all others. Now, verse 2 goes on to tell us that there's another ingredient to the calmed and quieted soul. Not only is there humility, but also contentment. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within. Now, to be weaned as a child is to no longer feed off of your mother's milk. And in that culture, they generally waited longer than we might, in generally speaking, in our Western culture, to wean their children. Uh, many times a child would be three or four or even five years old before they would be fully weaned. So you can imagine how this was a significant time in that culture and potentially a season or time filled with struggle. Because basically what you have is a toddler who is able to express their own desires and their own will being denied their desire for a season until they grow out of it and they are fully weaned. And there would be a struggle there would be tears, there would be crying, there would be lashing out, there would be anger, but eventually the child would no longer crave what he used to and would grow to be content. Now, the reality is, you, as you listen to this, likely when you were a little girl, little baby, or a little boy, little baby boy, each of you pitched a little fit when that 
change came into your life. But of course, none of us would want to go back to those days. We have left that desire for our mothers far behind us, and it's grotesque and awkward for us to consider even going back. This, according to the psalm, accurately depicts growth in the Christian life. Stuff we thought that we had to have. Stuff that we pitched little fits for and about. Over time, grow less desirable as the years of walking with Christ pass by. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, it is not every child of God who arrives at this weanedness speedily. Some are sucklings when they ought to be fathers. Others are hard to wean and cry and fight and rage against their heavenly parents' discipline. And the truth is, is that there are varying degrees of maturity in Christianity. In 1 John chapter 2, John wrote to fathers, to young men, and to little children. And you can have been in Christ for 40 years, yet still be stuck in the little children phase of the maturity process in Jesus Christ. And this, apparently, is one of those major categories. Learning how to grow content before God. Saying, Lord, I don't need anything but you. Paul, I think, had come to this glorious place. In Philippians chapter 4, he talked about this when he said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He said, I've learned the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, contentment is not the overwhelmed feeling that comes from too much of a good thing. That's what Solomon would say at the end of testing the limits of his fleshly desire. Uninhibited, unrestrained desire fulfilled in King Solomon's life. And at the end of it, he said, all is vanity. That is not what a feeling of contentment is. Contentment also is not denying unhappy feelings, but freedom to be uncontrolled by those feelings and to work through those feelings with Christ. Contentment is not pretending things are right when they are not, but peace from God in, in all seasons. A contentment is not complacency that defeats any attempt to improve in life. And contentment is not comfortable living, but joy beyond all circumstances. So the reality, though, is that progress and the flesh and advertising and temptations and boredom and vanity all call us to try to draw back into that old immaturity. Needing things, wanting things, desiring things that Christ himself has been attempting to pull us out of and grow us away from. Now, a question that we might ask is, how does God wean us? Well, it's with a struggle. I mean, there is a struggling process to come out of the world and be separate. There is a process of pain attached to getting to a point where you say, you know what? I used to think that I needed such and such in my life so badly. But the reality is, I don't need it as I thought I did. 
I thought I needed to date that person, or I thought I needed that financial goal, or I thought I needed that zip code, or I thought I needed my spouse to behave like this, or I thought I needed that educational aspiration or goal. I thought I needed that health goal or physique goal. I thought I needed that fruitfulness goal. And the reality, however, is that that's not what we need. And to come to a place of such contentment within the soul where we're satisfied. But it is a struggle to get to that point. And God will wean us from sin. He'll make it bitter. He'll remove it from our lives and he will give us a better food in him. And God will wean us like a mother for no child weans itself. No matter how much the singer indicates that, that I've weaned myself, I've calmed and quieted my soul. The reality is we know that we've needed and had the help of God in this process. And if you consider a mother weaning her child, you have to realize that it's a troublesome task. And a mom will put the temporary desire of the child beneath the good future of the child. That child will kick and scream and yell and be angry and hate. But the mom will say, no, I know what is best for you. You cannot live the rest of your life with this. You must be cut off. You must be weaned. Now the song ends very beautifully and simply with, and encouragement. So to have a calmed and quieted soul requires humility. It requires contentment. But this is beautiful. We should also encourage others to do likewise. It ends very simply like Psalm 130 ended very similarly. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth forevermore. The whole assembly needed to hear this concept. Every child every woman, every man, we are all to allow God's steady maturing of our desires. In a sense, this is a maintenance song. In my front yard, I have a white fence. And as the years go by, that white fence is sure to turn black. It requires maintenance, washing and painting and staining and repair. And in our hearts, we need maintenance. The reality is, is that desires creep back in, but the exhortation to the congregation is hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That means from today forward, today plus. Listen, there's nothing that you can do about yesterday and your desires yesterday, even if they were out of control. There's nothing that you can do to change those or if if your desires were good yesterday. There's, There's nothing that that will do for you today. But it's about today and tomorrow and forever. And so the question that we might ask is, what infantile desires might God attempt to wean from you? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You know, when I was a boy, I wanted to be a pitcher on the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. Eventually, I realized that was a dream that was not for me and that God had other plans. And it's easy to look back on those days and laugh at my childish desires and dreams. But the truth is, 
is that we can look back on our childhood and laugh at the desires of our childhood, but somehow we consider all of our desires in the present to be mature and right and good. And this song might help us understand or consider perhaps not. Maybe there is more that the Lord is saying, you know, I'm trying to give you such deep and incredible joy, the kind of joy that is disconnected from things and gifts and is completely connected to me. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.